Now, I have one announcement just before we start. We will make sure that everything is covered. If you were not here last Sunday, and if you're a mother, we have tokens for you. So after the service, make your way down. Beside the coffee pot, there, there are tokens for you. If you're a mom, get one, because this is our way to say thank you very much. Happy Mother's Day. All right, now, today's our third installment on our series, A King After God's Own Heart. We're going to talk about David and Goliath. Now, a lot of us have heard about this story before. I've heard this story before. When I was young, beginning from Sunday school, youth camps, and then, you know, a lot of sermons from different pastors, from different churches and denominations, I've heard this sermons, sermon countless times. And I've always been fascinated by David and Goliath. Anyone who has not heard David and Goliath, raise a hand. All right, so I'm guessing that every one of us here know the story of David and Goliath. But I noticed that every time this story is preached, there's always a pump-up action narrative that is fascinating. But then I also noticed that whenever this story is preached, Goliath is always a metaphor. Goliath is always a metaphor for sickness and life struggles and, and sometimes in-laws and crazy bosses. See, the thing here is that in this story, Goliath is not just a metaphor. Goliath is a real character in the story. He's a, he was a real human being in the story. And though sometimes when it is preached, it sounds poetic in nature, but Goliath being a metaphor is not the correct, most accurate interpretation of the texts. There's something much deeper than Goliath being a metaphor. So, let me say this. David and Goliath is not that we are David and we are faced with huge ob obstacles in life and that if we have enough courage and faith and if we slay our obstacles or the giant, then we will overcome. It's not that story. Goliath and David's story is more than that. It's deeper than that. Now, I'm going to uh, make a sidebar on this one. All right, sidebar. The goal of preaching is not a change of behavior. I, I said this last Sunday, but I want to emphasize this. The goal of the sermon is not a change of behavior. This is not where we talk about being more, more patient or more kind or more generous. This is not about changing behavior. Uh, the only one who can change behavior is the Holy Spirit because he's the one who transforms the heart. Without the transformation of the heart, there's no change of behavior. So I can preach 100 sermons and we can still be the same. Because only the Holy Spirit has the power to change the heart, transform the heart. The goal of the sermon is to change the way we think. Whenever we ask for wisdom, we think or we probably assume that whenever we need wisdom or ask for wisdom, it's, it's a, a, a sort of magic thing that suddenly transforms our brain that suddenly makes us think differently. That's not wisdom. <laughs> That's esoteric wisdom. That is what the sciences and the, the mediums asked when they asked for spirits for wisdom. That is not the wisdom of the Bible. Whenever we talk about wisdom, the book, book of Proverbs, in the book of Psalms, in Deuteronomy, in the book of Numbers, wisdom is always in the Word, reading the Word, reflecting on the Word, meditating on the Word. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. That is wisdom. So the goal of the sermon is to help us gain wisdom by reflecting on the Word. We have to understand the story of David deeper than the surface of David and Goliath. Now, if we are to understand this sermon, 
I think we will appreciate this better, understand this better, if we go two chapters back, chapters 15 and 16, because this is chapter 17. Now, chapter 15, what happened then was that God told Saul to attack a group of people called the Amalekites. Spare no one, kill everything, including men, women, children, sheep and oxen, everything. But Saul, who was then king, were not obedient to God. He spared the king. He wants the king to be trophy. And he feigned kindness. It was, it was his generosity to the king. But Samuel detected it. And God was not impressed with Saul. And so this was the last straw for God to reject Saul as king. At the end of, verse, of chapter 16, oh sorry, it's chapter 15, the spirit of, of God told Samuel to choose another king. And so by chapter 16, the focus now is on David. David is a very unlikely candidate for being king. Samuel was led by God to the Bethlehemite Jesse. He was presented with all his sons, eight of them all. The last one was David. And Samuel was taught by God that the standard of God is not the standard of men. The standard of men is looking at the appearance and the height. Saul has, is taller than the rest of the Israelites. Tall and looking good. But then God told Samuel that God looks at the heart. That's the main qualification for a king, a man after God's own heart. And so David was chosen. The last portion of chapter 16 was a transition to kingship. See, Saul was anointed as king, and in chapter 16, David was anointed as king. Here's the problem. There's only one throne. There's only one crown. There cannot be two kings in Israel. So we must decide who is king. But then before the chapter ends, God gave us a breadcrumb to tell us who is real king. The Spirit of the Lord, according to chapter 16, moved from Saul to David. That's our cue. That means Saul is no longer king. David is the anointed king. Chapter 17 will be the establishment of who is the real king. It, God will show the people who is now the anointed of God. Chapter 17. So this may be a battle between Goliath and David, but this will establish David as the real king, a man after God's own heart. Let me show you the first thing that happened in chapter 17, the Valley of Elah. Now, the Valley of Elah is a plain valley and in between mountains. There's one mountain in the other, mountain on the other side, and there's a valley in between. The Israelite army was on the other side, the Philistine army is on the other side, and they are supposed to meet in the valley, you know, all the fightings in the valley. And the Bible said that for 40 days, there's this one champion from the group of the Philistines who always, day after day, morning and night, would come and defy the armies of the living God, cursing the name of God in front of the Israelites. And the Israelites, together with Saul, say nothing, as in nada, nothing. 40 days. Let me start this verse 4. It says, A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. Now, it's very important that we establish the height of Goliath. Six cubits in a span is equivalent to nine feet six inches. <laughs> Not me. <laughs> Not me. I showed you last Sunday Yao Ming. Yao Ming is just seven four. Goliath is 9'6". He's, he's really tall. As tall as my ceiling in the house. I mean, he, this guy is, is something. 
It says, okay, watch this, because this will be repeated. He had a bronze helmet, bronze. He wore a coat scale armor of bronze, again, weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves, and bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spare shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Not only that this guy stole, he's big and he's wearing bronze. Now, why do you think this is important for the narrator to emphasize that he's wearing something bronze? This is a breadcrumb. This tells us something about Goliath. Now, there's a difference between giantism and being a giant. Okay, today we have modern giants, we call giants, but they have a disability. It's called giantism. Giantism is due to hyperplasia. The growth hormone is not stopping. There's a, a sickness in the pituitary gland that cannot limit the growth hormone. So you keep on growing and growing and growing. It's a, it's a disease. So there's this guy who now currently holds the Guinness World Record for the tallest person alive. His name is Kosen, um, Sultan Kosen. He stands at 8 feet 2 inches. This guy is tall. But if there's any common thing among all those who are suffering from giantism, they have weak knees and weak eyes. Bad eyesight, weak knees. That's why you see him, he's wearing crumbs. Now, this is the problem with giantism. Now, Goliath is not like that. Goliath, if you see, is wearing heavy armor. He cannot be, you know, walking like that. He's an easy target if he's that. So Goliath is different. He's not suffering from giantism. Goliath is something else. Now, I'm going to mention something very controversial, and this may not agree with your theology, but I'd like you to consider, okay? Sometimes it's hard to, to read the Bible because there's a lot of stories, and I understand that. But what I'm trying to do Sunday after Sunday is to connect all the stories together because in the Bible, there's only one grand narrative. What I'm doing is connecting stories after each other because they're all interconnected. Now, I'm going to go with Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. What is the origin of Goliath? Who is Goliath and what is his origin? Let me tell you the backstory of Goliath. Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of man very attractive. Now, watch this word phrase, sons of God. And they took their wives as they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. So the sons of God are different from the sons of men or the daughters of men. For he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The span of time that Noah built the ark is 120 years years. Verse 4, the Nephilim, this is also translated in some English Bibles as the giants. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, which means after the flood. When the sons of God, again, came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. These were mighty men of old, the men of renown. In Hebrew, it is Ish Gibor, great warriors or tall warriors. So the idea here is that the sons of God, they're not humans, went to the daughters of men who are humans, and they produce hybrids. Are you following me? Oh, I'm sure this might be sounding strange and weird because this is weird. But consider this. This inner marriage, according to, to Genesis chapter 6, if you observe closely, is 
a sort of rebellion of the angelic rebellion from heaven because the sons of God are the heavenly beings. Now, if you go to, say, the book of Job, Deuteronomy, or the book of Psalms, or go to the prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel, and you see, encounter the term sons of God, they always refer to heavenly beings. Ben Benayim. It's always the sons of God, heavenly beings. So the heavenly beings, angelic beings, intermarrying the sons of men or the daughters of men. This is strange. But the Bible is not afraid to say this. Now, is it possible for that to happen? Abraham met three figures. One of them is God. They went to Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot defended the two angels, right? They ate. Gideon encountered an angel. Joshua encountered an angel. Jacob even struggled and, and wrestled with an angel. So, in the Old Testament, angels, heavenly beings, take human form. In fact, if you read the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 2, it will say that be hospitable because sometimes we might be entertaining angels. Have you seen that? This is interesting. So now, what we're saying is that this happened and they produced hybrids. Now, these warriors ruled the land before the flood, and they settled in Canaan after the flood. Genesis 6 is in the context of rebellion and wickedness. This act of intermarriage between heavenly beings and human beings is a rebellion against God. So Genesis 3 is rebellion. Genesis 6 is rebellion. Genesis 11 is another rebellion. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is all rebellion from God's will. Fast forward to Moses. Now, the sons of Israel, or the Israelites, escaped from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. They almost entered the Promised Land. And before they even entered, they, they said, we have to spy on the land and check if it's really a land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses sent 12 spies. They came, came back after 40 days. Interesting, another 40. 10 of them said, it's good. It's really a land flow with milk and honey. I mean, they, they brought grapes back, and the grapes were like tennis balls. I mean, it's huge. Anyone, anyone ate grapes as big as tennis balls? I mean, this is big. The land is really fertile. But there's one thing. There were giants in the land. Let me, let me read this to you. Numbers 13, 32. It says, So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone out to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. This is hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. The land does not just open up and divorce the inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. The all the people is exaggeration, but the, the great height is not. And there were, we saw, the Nephilim. We read that from Genesis 6. The sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And then we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, so we seem to them. Now, again, this is an interesting thing. It's not a metaphor. Giants are real. These are not people who are suffering from giantism. Now, the question is, why are the giants opposing the claims of Israel in Canaan? Why are they a threat to the people of Israel? To answer that, we have to go back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, you know the story again and again. There's a garden, and in the garden there was Adam and Eve. But in the garden there was also a serpent coiling in the tree. 
that serpent is not an ordinary serpent. Serpents don't talk. Anyone seen a serpent that talk or dance? I'm not sure cobras dance, but they don't talk. This serpent in Genesis 3 talks. He deceived Adam and Eve. See, this is, this is fascinating because the word for serpent is nakash, but another word for serpent is saraf. You heard about Michael the archangel, right? You heard about Gabriel. Gabriel's the one who brought news to Mary that you will bear a son, even though you are a virgin. There's Gabriel. But there's also other angels in heaven. We have cherubim. Cherubim are not heads of small little boys with wings. <laughs> we don't have that in the Bible. Cherubims are the garden angels that guarded the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden. Cherubim. There's another group of angels they called seraphim. Seraphim are the ones that mentioned in Isaiah chapter 6. They were the ones with six wings, flying, covering their feet, covering their head, and they're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are in the throne of God. They're the guardians, the nearest to the throne of God, the seraphim. And the word seraph means snake. So the serpent in the Garden of Eden is a seraph, a heavenly being. But this guy... In the Garden of Eden, it's not a good guy anymore. How do we know that? Because it deceived Adam and Eve to join him in his rebellion against God. He's a bad guy. So what we're saying is that the heavenly beings rebelled against God, it deceived Adam and Eve, and in Genesis chapter 6, they intermarried with human beings, they produced giants, Nephilim. These are the very people the Israelites encountered in the land of Canaan. This is interesting. Now, the eating of the fruit disrupted the good world that God has created. And because of that, God put a curse on the seraph. The curse says that soon time will come that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. There will be a long line of continuous enmity or rivalry between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But time will come, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. If you are the serpent or the seraph, the only logical thing to do is to disrupt the line of the woman. That's why we have Adam, uh, Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother because maybe the seraph thought Abel is the good guy. He's the line of the woman. All throughout the history of Israel, Pharaoh has tried to kill the seed of the woman. The only logical thing to do is to kill the seed of the woman so that his time will not come, but he cannot really stop the prophecy of God. So if you can picture the serpent in the Garden of Eden coiling in the tree with scales and bronze, and then you read Goliath, it says, 17 verse 5, he had a bronze helmet, bronze coat of scale, armor of bronze, and had bronze armor and javelin of bronze. In the eyes of the Israelites, they're looking at Goliath like a 9 foot 6 inches serpent. He's the embodiment of evil, opposing the seed of the woman. Are you getting this? This is how we read the literature. Let me show you Goliath. Goliath, again, is a hybrid. He's a product of the intermarriage between heavenly beings and humans, and it's 
main goal, only goal, is to destroy the seed of the woman. Now, how do we know that the seed of the woman will be coming from the Israelite gene pool? Because in Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham, and from his descendants will come the Messiah. I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and you will become blessing to many nations. The descendants of Abraham will come, the seed of the woman. So for 40 days, this Goliath, serpent, seraph, looking like, are defying the armies of the living God and cursing God through his name. Verse 10, And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, this is interesting. Again, back to chapter 10 is Saul was anointed by God. He was taller than the rest. He was like, for me, for five, five foot, four inches people, Saul is like seven. He's giant to me. He's tall. He's supposed to fight the battles for the Israelites. And yet at this point, he was also afraid. So the question is, who will fight Goliath? Who, who will rival this tall guy who is embodying the serpent, threatening to destroy the seed of the woman? And, and why? Verse 12. Now here comes the entrance of David. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. I'm sorry, the, the wife was not mentioned here. I know it's Mother's Day last Sunday, but this is how the literature of Hebrews go. Only Jesse was mentioned, but, but a breadcrumb was mentioned. He was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem. In the Old Testament, Bethlehem was called Ephrathah. And in the New Testament, the same place is called Bethlehem. So Ephrathah and Bethlehem is the same. But Jesse is from the land of Bethlehem or Ephrathah. This is a breadcrumb. Why? Because in the Old Testament, the founder of Ephrathah is the son of Caleb, Hur. Caleb is known to be a giant slayer. So when the Bible introduces David as an Ephrathite, he's telling us there is a potential giant slayer, David, because he's coming from Ephrathah. Are you following me? This is interesting. What do you think? Now, here comes David to the front line on a cheese run. He's not drafted in the military. His dad wants to know what's happening for 40 days now. So he sends David with the cheese and some bread to bring his brothers and to bring news back. He's not supposed to fight. He was on a cheese run. He was there just to gather news. But when he was there, he went to the camp and he overheard the talk. There is this champion Goliath who is defying the name of God. David cannot, cannot accept this. Now, the Bible said that this Goliath is a champion. The original word in Hebrew is translated literally as in-between man, champion. In-between man, which means he's the go-between, the representative of the Philistines to fight against the Israelites. So that means the Israelites too must produce a champion, an in-between man. But there's no in-between man. Everybody's afraid. So verse 8. Goliath said, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Does this sound familiar to you? This should be familiar because this should evoke memories of Egypt, where Israelites were slaves for 400 years. I mean, this guy wants to make Israel slaves again. He wants to make sure that the whole nation of Israel becomes slaves again for another 400 years under the Philistines. And this rivalry of slavery goes all the way back to Genesis 6, where the serpent wants to enslave humankind. That's why he deceived Adam and Eve. David knew. David was theologically adept. So in verse 26, he spoke. Verse 26 said, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, now these statements are theologically loaded. Watch this. He mentioned three particular words that, are, that we should pick up. He said, Reproach, uncircumcised, and defy. Who is this what should be done for this man who takes away the reproach from Israel, this uncircumcised Philistine who defied the armies of the living God? Now, all these words can be traced back to Joshua chapter 5 and 6. The first time when the people of Israel entered the promised land, manna stopped, they were able to eat the first harvest, and Joshua circumcised all the Israelites, thus, by doing that, taking away the reproach or the mark of slavery of the Israelites from Egypt. By doing that, they are in one way defying the inhabitants of the land. So these words are very clear to the Israelites, beginning from Joshua chapters 5 and 6. David was rhetorically saying, I'm going to defy this. See, the word uncircumcised is a pejorative term because circumcision in the book of Numbers and Leviticus means unclean. Unclean. You cannot be near God because you are unclean. Goliath is uncircumcised. He's unclean. Now, if there's one thing that's for sure, Goliath was defying the name of God. Now, it's very clear for David, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers, no, we have these Ten Commandments. You shall not use the name of the Lord in vain. Anyone who's caught blaspheming the name of God is subject to be stoned to death. So David knew he has to do something. This guy is blaspheming the name of God. He must be stoned to death. Now we know what David will do. He will stone to death Goliath. We know the story, right? In order to do that, he must volunteer to fight because he's not drafted. Now, a lot of people think that David is a youth. He really cannot fight, but because God gave him strength and wisdom and, and courage, he was able to fight Goliath. But it's not true. He's not the, the youth of today who sits in front of television and, wa- and play video games. It's not like that. David was already a shepherd. In chapter 15, he was a man of valor, trained for war. At a very young age, Israelites are trained for war. Take note also that David has faced lions, he faced bears. Anyone faced bears and lions? <laughs> I mean, I don't. So David is, is not really a, a baguito in this sort. David knows that what's at stake here. So David is ready for this one. So he volunteered. 
This is what he said when he was interviewed by Saul in verse 36. He said, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord will deliver me, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Now he's very clear that God will enable him because God has enabled him before. So if David came forward and volunteered, it is because of his holy indignation. He cannot stand Goliath defying the name of God. He must do something about it. But the question is, how can the Israelites and Saul himself stand for 40 days doing nothing? And yet David, who just came to the camp, have this feeling of holy indignation. There's only one secret to this one, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit moved from Saul, transferred to David. He's now the anointed king of Israel. Why was Saul afraid of Goliath? Because he doesn't have the Spirit. It was on David already. So the conversation is longer than the actual fight. David went in front, picked up five stones. There's no magic in the five stones. He picked up five stones, he used his sling, struck the giant, the giant fell, took up the sword, and sliced the head. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. Now he has a plan. He's not just going there without any strategy. David has a plan. He will strike and cut the head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, the wild beasts of the earth, and all that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all that this assembly may know that the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, may know that Yahweh saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. This is fascinating. This is theologically loaded. I'm going to show you a picture of, of David beheading Goliath. So when he came near, he slung the sling. It's not as fast as a bullet. Bullet is about uh, 2,500 uh, feet per second. A sling with a stone as big as this can go as fast as 500 feet per second. It can kill a bear or a lion. And it killed Goliath. The scriptures actually said that the stone shrunk in his forehead. He was wearing a helmet, but it still shrunk in his forehead. That means it's, it was really a hit. It was directly striking Goliath. He fell, and David came near, took up the large sword, and sliced the head. What did he say he would do? I will strike you down and cut off your head. They should ring echoes of Genesis chapter 3. What is Genesis chapter 3 again? If Goliath is the serpent looking like scales and bronze... Then he's serpent in Genesis chapter 3, where the prophecy said God will crush his head by the seed of the woman. Could David be the seed of the woman? That's an interesting question. Now, if you're waiting for me to talk about addictions and struggles and evil bosses and in-laws, Goliath is not all those things. See, Goliath is not a metaphor. I'm sorry to disappoint you. Goliath was a real enemy, a half-breed, a figure 
of rebellion. Someone who is hell-bent on destroying the seed of the woman. So this story is much larger than us. Because in this story, it points to the real seed of the woman. Okay, let me say this. If you're reading this story and you're saying, I'm David, God will enable me, and I will destroy my giants. All the sermons I heard is always like facing your giants, facing your giants. No, we are not David. We are not facing Goliath. No, we're not. We are more like the Israelites in the trenches waiting because we're afraid and terrified. We cannot face a half-breed. We're not David. This story is not about you and me. This story is about the real champion, the real in-between man, the representative. What we need is a figure like David to fight the Lord's battle. This is not your battle. This is the Lord's battle. You see, human race is in big trouble right now. We're not only fighting amongst each other, we are fighting also an invisible enemy. Would you say amen to that? We are facing an invisible enemy. We are fighting deception of the enemy. We are fighting the lies of the enemy. We are fighting the spiritual forces. That's why Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 5, put on the full armor of God. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6 verse 12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's human beings or Goliath, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are spirits, heavenly beings who have rebelled against God. I mean, you, you are not matched to fight these beings. We are not capable of fighting these beings. These are real heavenly beings. See, the real battle is not between genders. It's a deception. The real battle is not against political affiliations. That's a deception. The, the real battle is not about uh, bad habits or addictions or worries or suicidal thoughts. These are real struggles that we face every day, but these are not the real battle. There's an underlying force behind all these addictions and worries and troubles and suicidal thoughts. People may not be thinking about spiritual forces, but people... The world is heavily influenced by and controlled by or we are conditioned by evil demonic powers. And yet we are fixated on the symptoms. We are fixated. See, this is like fever. We are fixated on the fever, but not the virus that's causing the infl inflammation. We're supposed to focus on the, the virus, the bacteria, not the fever. See, the real culprit here, the real enemy, is not your husband or your wife. Yes? It's not your sibling. The real enemy is the enemy, the Satan's. See, Satan is a title. It means adversary, the enemy. The real enemy is the enemy, spiritual force, the cosmic powers, the spiritual force of evil in heavenly places. What we need is a champion, an in-between man who has the anointing, who has dealt with lions and bears, who's not afraid, who has the power of the Spirit of God, who has the anointing. Verse 58. Whose son are you, young man? 
David answered, I am your son. I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, this is interesting. If you're reading this as a literature, in chapter 17, David was introduced as the one coming from Bethlehem or from Ephrathah. And it ends also with the same thing. David is the son of his servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. Ephrathah and Bethlehem are the same. Now, why is this important? Again, Bethlehem and Ephrathah is pointing us to Caleb, the giant slayer. David is now the successor of Caleb, the giant slayer. Now, what's interesting here is that this portion of story was quoted later on by prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. If you look back to Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, and you tie in Micah chapter 2, 5 chapter 5, 2, it is saying that this seed of the woman is a ruler that will be coming forth from Bethlehem. That means anyone who is born in Bethlehem is a suspect as the seed of the woman. Now, the target is zeroing in. It's easier now for the enemy to seek and find, like a missile, whoever is born in Bethlehem. See, again, Bethlehem is known for Caleb, the giant killer. It's also known for David, another giant killer. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Are you still with me? Fast forward to the New Testament. Christmas, Jesus was born. Now, we don't know the exact date for that, but Christmas season... Two years after, the wise men came. It's not three kings, okay? <laughs> it's wise men. They're not kings. They're wise men. These wise men were trained by Daniel the prophet when he was in Babylon. And they know about Micah chapter 5, verse 2. There will become a ruler, the king of the Jews, coming or will be born from Bethlehem. They paid a visit to Herod the king, a courtesy visit. And Herod said, where is this king be born? And they said, from Bethlehem. And so Herod consulted all the scholars in the Bible, and they, were, they pointed him, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. This is quoted in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That born, that king, will be born in Bethlehem. So the question is, will this ruler born in Bethlehem be the one to crush the serpent's head? Will this king finally destroy the seraph from the garden? The next thing we know, Herod, Herod ordered the massacre of all the Jewish boys who lived in Bethlehem two years under. What do we have here? It's like Pharaoh in Egypt who also ordered all the Hebrew boys to be massacred to death. What do we have here? Go back to Genesis 3. This is the serpent working behind Herod, telling him, destroy the seed of the woman because the king is born in Bethlehem. Are you following this story? What we need is a champion, and this champion was already born in Bethlehem. See, Herod may not be a giant, but he was influenced by this giant serpent. So when we read the story of David and Goliath in this context, you will see that the story from Genesis 3 culminates in the story of Jesus Christ. He is the champion in between. But there's this time when he faced the giant, there's no sling or stone. He faced it barehanded. When did Jesus face the giant, the serpent, 
the enemy. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. It says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is talking about the principalities of the air, the cosmic evil powers in the heavenly places. The enemy has conspired and gathered all the chess pieces together to conspire to kill Jesus Christ on the cross. And they thought they had Jesus Christ. But you see, Jesus Christ already knew what will happen. In fact, he was telling all his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem in three days. Uh, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I will be crucified, but in three days I will rise again. He keeps on repeating this to his disciples. He knows the game plan. He was not surprised on this one. But the enemy does not understand. So, if you think about it, in the New Testament, the Sanhedrin conspired with Pilate and the Roman emperor, conspired with the people, conspired with the Roman soldiers. They crucified Jesus Christ. They thought they won. Big mistake. Because God is designed to reverse this so that Jesus will win the battle. Two weeks before this, Jesus was in Caesarea Philippi. A- anyone who has been to Israel would have known Caesarea Philippi is about north of Jerusalem. This is known to be the bulwark, the territory, the enemy turf of Baal. There is this cave in Caesarea Philippi which says the gates of hell. This, this is literal. And then you hear Jesus in Caesarea Philippi saying, Upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you remember that? What is Jesus doing there in Caesarea Philippi? He was trying to pick a fight with the evil forces. He was trying to taunt them. This brings you back to 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath exchanging words. David said that, Goliath said that, come on, let's fight. This is Jesus being David, being an in-between, picking a fight. And then six days later, he went to the mountain with Peter, James, and John. The only mountain in Caesarea Philippi is Mount Hermon. In Mount Hermon, Jesus went up, Peter, James, and John, and then he was transformed in glory. It was like saying, this is me. This is the real me, Jesus Christ. But all those are interesting. But what's more interesting is the voice from heaven. Remember that voice? This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. What does it mean? Is God trying to be sentimental here? Oh, this is my cute Jesus Christ. He's so obedient. That's why he's my beloved son. No. Because in the Old Testament, the meaning of the word David is beloved. David has a lot of children. He can only have one successor to the throne, his beloved son, Solomon. So if we translate this correctly, the voice that says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased, is translated, this is my David's legitimate heir to the throne, Jesus Christ. That voice is pointing to Jesus Christ as the seed of the woman, the heir to the throne, the Lord and ruler of all the universe. Folks, this fight is fight against the spiritual forces of evil one. See, when we are in the fight, God does not send a cheerleader that says, you can do it, come on, you can do it. We cannot. We're human beings. We're frail. 
we cannot fight the evil forces. What we need is a champion. There's only one who's qualified. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our champion, an in-between man. You see, we are fighting, but we are not in the front line. We are in the trenches back there looking at David and seeing him fight Goliath. We are also like that. We're not David. We are the people in the trenches. What Paul said, we are made to, to wear the full armor of God. But we are not said to fight. We are said to stand your ground. That's what Paul said. We're not in the, in the front line. You see, the evil spirits are not intimidated. Even if we raise our voice and command them, they don't care. They don't care, and they're not affected by the high decibels of your voice. In Jesus' name, I command you. Even if you shout 100 times, they're not afraid of that. What they're afraid of is Jesus Christ. What they're afraid of is them being crushed underneath our feet, Romans 16, 20. What they're afraid of is Jesus exposing the lies and the deceptions of the enemy. What they're afraid of is Jesus exposing the sleight of hands and their manipulation of the world. What they're afraid of is the church becoming awakened and actively involved in winning the souls because that is invading the gates of hell. When we win souls for Jesus, we invade the gates of hell. That's what they're afraid of. You see, because the more people we win for Christ, the nearer they reach their final judgment. So you see, we're not winning the fight because we are strong. No, we're not. We are winning the fight because we have a champion, Jesus Christ. We are winning the fight because there's only one simple reason. Listen to this. The battle is the Lord's. Addictions, the battle is the Lord's. It's not you. Worries, the battle is the Lord's. It's not you. Evil people, the battle is the Lord's. It's not you. The only reason when we can fight is because we have a champion, Jesus Christ. And all we have to do, according to Apostle Paul, is to dress up, to man up, and stand your ground. Just be there and watch Jesus fight for you. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today acknowledging that there's only one champion. It's Jesus Christ. There's only one mediator between man and God, Jesus Christ. There's only man... One who is an in-between man who fought for us, that's Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that sometimes we become so arrogant and we confront head-on the enemy as if we have the power like Jesus Christ, but we confess that we are weak, that we are also deceived like Adam and Eve. But we acknowledge that we have one champion, the Lord's anointed, the ruler that's prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Father, we confess and acknowledge that there is only one Lord and God, and it's the name of Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord, and we acknowledge the same thing. Brothers and sisters, I want to give a benediction based on Romans chapter 16, verse 20. This is what Paul said, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet, and the grace and glory and love of Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen.